Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Long Story Short. This is a special edition from the Skoll World Forum in Oxford. I'm Kate Wathen here with Angie Murray Mirawa, the Executive Director of CAMFED Africa and our West Coast correspondent Catherine Cheney to talk about the intersection of proximity, power and donorship in international development. Thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. All right, so we're going to get right into it. The School World Forum started earlier this week, and there have been a lot of conversations about what power means in the development industry, in philanthropy. So I want to start by getting into that. A lot of the conversations have centered on the power dynamic between the Western donors and their donorship to developing countries, and kind of the funder and fundy relationship, and how that can be problematic. Angie, I would like to start with you about you know, what you see in terms of the power dynamic, and is there something that we're missing in this conversation? What is your take? Um, I think one of the things that I would want to really talk about, there is definitely the relationship between the donor and grantees, between the West and the South, North, South, and all that. But I would really want to talk about the power dynamics that exist in the communities well before we start talking about somebody else coming in and assisting. There is a continuous reality that actually the most vulnerable are often feel, often feel powerless and in the face of their needs and everything. And I think it's important that we realize that that vulnerability brings with it a feeling of that maybe we don't belong here, maybe whatever we get is what we can. So there's a feeling of indebtedness whenever somebody comes in and gives something. And indebtedness brings with it vulnerability. So for us as an organization, comfort, that's one of the things that we realize, that when you give somebody something when they don't have it, there is that relationship that you know already is created there. So you need to manage it very clearly. So for us, we've got an entitlement approach, that for the children that we support, for the communities that we support, that we say that it's your entitlement as a human being. It's your right to be able to go to school. It's your right to have dignity as a human being. So just to say that when you talk about power dynamics, we need to be very careful about not talking about indebtedness or misplaced gratitude, so to speak. Yeah, I, I would imagine that for these kind of power dynamics that exist even before someone comes in and talks about giving aid or implementing programming, but even if there's like an assessment done or something, it often doesn't, it often doesn't cover the dynamics between people. Yeah, the, the reality is, you know, you can have assessments, you can have researches, but oftentimes there is a very tacit, on the ground issues that are happening that at times even researchers cannot disclose. The thing is communities, most of them have been there together for a long time. There's a community language that transcends the normal language that we use. There is an understanding, there is a social process going on and trust issues going on there. And communities don't just open up. I think for me that's one of the things that I've realized that at times we underestimate the power that's already exists in communities in terms of also them protecting their own dignity of and their own rights to their own privacy. So at times, you know, spending two weeks with them, three weeks with them doesn't mean you know everything that's going on and it doesn't mean that you understand what exactly is going on on the undercurrents. I just want to give you one of the examples that um, have been used a lot within the girls' education sector. I've to be honest, personally, been very angry and frustrated whenever somebody says, oh, we want to be able to create awareness on the importance of education. 
for me that's really patronizing because when you look at communities in Africa there's a lot of sacrificing going on to be able to keep their children in school to be able to meet the school going costs and everything so for somebody to come and say they're going to spend millions and billions of dollars to create awareness on the importance of education is clearly failing to understand the power dynamic around that. Do you think that parents don't want to send their kids to school? <laughs> exactly, but the thing is, you know, what a poor parent wants so their child is the same thing somebody who can afford it wants it. The difference is that they can't afford it. So it doesn't mean that actually they don't value it. So there's no power relationship in terms of you having better understanding. It's just a resource issue. Yeah. yeah. What, do you think, what do you think it would take, A, for donors to, I guess, understand that, but also and why, why do you think there is an emphasis on things like awareness instead of, you know, having this more local approach of, you know, something that is more ground up than top down? Unfortunately, and I think to be honest, it's also an issue about proximity. It's an issue around, it's a human, <laughs> it's a human element that at times when we don't understand something, we assume that we are more powerful than others. The fact that we don't understand why something is the way it is, it doesn't mean that those people are less powerful and that they don't know what they are doing. So I, I do think for me at times it's this misplaced hero stance where you think actually somebody needs rescue when actually what they just want is a lift up, is just a resource. It's maybe just a pen for their child to go to school. It doesn't mean they don't understand why it's important. It doesn't mean that they don't understand how this could really transform their lives. But when you come with the perception that actually I'm going to tell you what I'm going to give you, how I'm going to give you, and where you're going to do this, communities at times feel powerless to be able to come against that whole tide of power, particularly where resources are concerned. And at times communities keep quiet doesn't mean that. Yeah. What you just touched on there was the theme of the school conference this year, which is power of proximity and how being proximate to one another can build things like empathy and understanding in order to have responsible innovation. And Catherine, I want to turn to you because you do a lot of reporting kind of at the intersection of international development, entrepreneurship, innovation. What are you hearing just in your conversations in terms of the value of being proximate and what that means to attendees at this conference and organizations? So uh, I'll start by stepping back for a second. Um, in the opening plenary here in Oxford, Brian Stevenson, founder of the Equal Justice Initi Initiative, um, spoke about the power of proximity. And um, I've followed his work for a while, but the impact that he has had on practitioners in global health and international development has only become clear to me in recent years. So. Um, actually at an event where I spoke alongside one of your colleagues at CAMFED back in September at the UN General Assembly in New York. It was an event that uh, the Skoll Foundation put on in partnership with TED. And um, along with a representative from CAMFED, we were talking about human capital. And there were several different panelists talking about human capital in global yeah. development. And one of the, one of the speakers, um, she, she's here at Skoll this week, was Debbie Ongdin Taylor. She's based in Myanmar. And her organization is called Proximity Designs. And she works in partnership with farmers in Myanmar uh, and very much takes a human-centered design approach, right? Um, and she talked about her work in social justice. She actually worked alongside Brian Stevenson. And it was his you know, call to action on proximate leadership that was part of what inspired her career. So that's just a long way of saying, um, I think 
Skoll does a beautiful job of tying a narrative thread throughout the conference and to kick things off with Brian Stevenson, who focuses domestically in the United States, but his message so resonates with people working all over the world, right? So I just wanted to start with that. Um, and if you haven't already, you can watch Brian's speech from, that was Monday night, mm -hmm. excuse me, Tuesday night. Tuesday evening. Yeah. yeah, it was Tuesday evening. You can find that on the Skoll Foundation website and please find it. It's I know several people who have rewatched it here in Oxford over and over again. So, um, yeah, I just think, in fact, I'm going to read a quote. It opens the um, program here, uh, The Power of Proximity. And he says, when we get close, we hear things that can't be heard from afar. We see things that can't be seen. And sometimes that makes the difference between acting justly and unjustly. But as we were discussing earlier, it's not just physical proximity. You know, it's not just getting close physically. Um, you know. I should note this. I, I'm DevX's West Coast correspondent in the US, based in Silicon Valley. Um, frankly, I spend a lot of time with people who are solving problems from a distance. And I think that's a challenge. Um, there are a lot of social entrepreneurs based in the San Francisco Bay Area working on very far away problems. Um, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a bigger problem or a smaller problem depending on the organization. Some of them are in Silicon Valley simply because that's the best area for them to fundraise. But they have local teams that are doing the work. Uh, so that's one model and I actually think for a lot of organizations that makes sense. But in other cases, I, I often meet social entrepreneurs and I think, so why aren't you there <laughs> solving that problem, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so uh, proximity comes up a lot in my reporting. Um, on the flip side, one of the positive trends that I see in a lot of the world that I cover, which is sort of these new actors in global development, right? Social entrepreneurs, um, philanthropists, philanthropic collaboratives. Um, I think in a lot of the sessions here and a lot of what I see in Silicon Valley, this donor and grantee dynamic is starting to look a little bit more like partnership, right? So I'm seeing more fundraising discussions where it's not... I have this need, can you give me this money? But here's what we're doing. I'm going to give you an opportunity to achieve your vision. You as a donor, let's be partners together in achieving this vision. So I'm seeing that distance narrowing. I think when you look at the aid industry more broadly, though, it's really hard to shift those power dynamics. I mean, these systems are just so entrenched. Um, but school is an interesting place. For me, it's an interesting place not just to go to sessions and, and hear panel discussions, some of which are fantastic, and, and I can talk about a few. Um, but it's to kind of see the meetings on the sidelines, if you will. Um, and I sometimes I'm just a fly on the wall. Probably shouldn't get into specifics here. But I've seen a few meetings where when we talk about how can donors get more proximate to the problems they're trying to solve, I actually think supporting entrepreneurship is a big part of that, right? That it's not donors contracting with the same organizations to solve problems, sometimes from a distance. It's donors finding local problem solvers who have a great solution, but building that connection can be really tough. So a few meetings here in Oxford, I'm seeing representatives of donor agencies meeting with social entrepreneurs doing amazing work, saying, how can we work together? Yeah. That requires changing systems. It's very difficult, but some of the conversations that happen here, I think, could lead to some real change. A conversation that I've heard come up a, a few times at Skull is around trust and being able to trust the people you fund. There was a pretty passionate conversation that happened yesterday um, where you know, uh, Boulet, who does nonprofit AF, is his blog, 
Nas said, you know, when there is no trust, when we are sitting at opposite ends of the table, when we are not paying attention to each other, when the organization has to fill out a hundred page grant form and feels like you can't tell donors what we actually need because then we might not get the money, that's a problematic dynamic. Um, so I would be curious to hear your thoughts, Angie, both on trust, but also about the CAMFED model, is, we were talking about this earlier, is kind of predicated on the opposite of that. Like it is very locally driven. So I'd like to hear your thoughts about the trust dynamic, but then also what the takeaways are um, from CAMFED's own experience. Uh, it's, it's interesting that you're talking about local problem solvers, because what CAMFED does and believes fundamentally is that local problems, local solutions. Yes. And what everybody else can do is to come and rally and support that initiative. So, uh, well, Comfort started in 1993 in Zimbabwe. At the same time, it was being registered in the UK. And Comfort was basically supporting girls to go through school. I should also mention that you were one of their first... Actually, I'm one of the first girls supported in 1993. So I'm basically an ancestor in the organization <laughs> as well. So just to say that, you know, when, when the organization was starting, there was a common perception that it was culture that was keeping girls out of school. It was the poverty of culture. There was something inadequate about the culture in Africa that was pushing its girls out of school. Only to discover that actually it was an issue around resources. Because whenever resources were provided, there was never a single incident where a parent came and said, actually my culture doesn't allow a girl to go to school. And at that time, actually realizing that even when you've got the little resources that you bring in, the community was prepared to rally around this support and support their children to go to school. Yes, the numbers of girls versus boys in school was very low. Yes, the number of students were actually completing school was very low, but the community was doing something about it, not enough given the resources that they've got. So when you start talking about trust and talking about proximity and talking about solutions, I fundamentally believe if we really care about sustainable solutions, about sustainable achievement of what we want to be able to achieve, we need to be able to realize the power in the community. We need to be able to realize that communities that are often affected or individuals that are affected are often the experts in the problem that they've got. It might be for a lack of resources, it might be for a lack of technology, it might be for a lack of uh, connections, for a lack of networking, but they are the experts. They would, be, you know, they would be able to talk to you about the various nuances to the problem, both historical and future threats in the way that that problem could be solved in. So, you know, comfort right now, 25 years later, this year is our 25th anniversary, we have a Comfort alumni network. Started with 400 girls in 1998, I'm one of the founding members. But right now we're 120,000 in Zimbabwe, Zambia, Malawi, Tanzania and Ghana. And this is a network of members who are at various stages in their life post school. Some are doctors, some are doing their PhD, some are nurses, some are just leaving school. Actually 85% of our members are below 25. So we actually have a youth population. A lot of them are youths and young people. And yes, with revolutionary ideas and everything. But what they bring the most is the intimate understanding of the challenges in their community and what that means. And what Comfort does right now is putting those young people at the forefront 
of our movement in solving the challenge of girls' exclusion in Africa, in solving the challenge of women empowerment, the challenge the problem of women exclusion from decision making, but also the whole challenge around the dynamics that come from the rural community. So I could have talked to you like you know Atlanta about one of the girls called Fatima. We have managed to convince traditional leaders in a community in Malawi that, of course, you might have been doing this for these years, but I'm a girl, and I can tell you how this has affected me, and I'm prepared to work with you as the power brokers to be able to address this. But since you're talking about donors, you know, and while still here, I would want to talk about some of the donors that we have worked with, who I feel that have allowed for the young women that we work with, for the alumni network to be able to define what the problem is in their community. Because it's not always about money. In terms it's about how decisions are made. In terms it's about how young women are included in decision making itself. So, you know, yes, for starters, I want to talk about DFID, the Department for International Development. The huge investment in girls' education in Africa is really paid off. There are a lot of girls that would never have been able to go to school, that have gone to school because of their support. I'm one of them, but, you know, there are also other young women that are out there that would never have seen the door of school that have gone there. And I think for me that's huge credit. It's a starting point. It's something that we need to be able to celebrate. Mm -hmm. SCORE, for example, right now is funding our work in Zimbabwe, Zambia, Malawi, Tanzania, and Ghana to be able to bring these young people that have been supported through school on, so what's the next stage? Mm -hmm. How do you organize yourselves and be able to bring change at large scale? I just told you that our you know, membership is now 120,000. So SCORE funded our establishment of our governance system, our leadership system, our structuring, and our strategizing. I just came from from Ghana where it was phenomenal epic and you know, given that you know to date we have supported over 780,000 children as an alumni network on our own ourselves so how do we scale this how do we sustain this and how do we partner with you know Silicon Valley philanthropists to be able to take this to another new level and while I'm still here let me thank the Clara Liner Foundation as well because <laughs> the Clara Liner Foundation is partnering with our Comfort alumni network the youngest in Malawi to be able to support girls through school. Mm -hmm. We've got a program there that's supporting 7,500 children. And that's Clara Lionel Foundation as an NGO, as a charity, mm -hmm. together with young people that themselves could have been excluded from mm -hmm. school. Mm -hmm. I don't know what could be more epic. Mm -hmm. And final point. <laughs> the Queen's Commonwealth Trust, they're launching their website. They just launched it today. Mm -hmm. And what the Queen's Commonwealth Trust does, it magnifies the voices of youth. It champions youth causes. And they're actually coming passed behind our Kama initiative on saying, actually these are young people, they are the experts, they know their problems, they understand them. What we need to be able to do is not parachute in here and try and solve the problems for them. We need to come behind their vision, behind their aspirations, and help them to take it to a whole new level. So can I piggyback on something really fast? Yes. So I just, I just want to piggyback on something in talking about the different donors you're working with. Um, in terms of news that's coming out of school, uh, one trend as well as something that there's been some news around is philanthropic collaboratives. So I think a big part of the challenge in terms of these systems we've talked about that can hold back progress on things like the SDGs, I think one of those things is egos. Egos hold back progress, you know, and um, part of that is donors who have, you know, their agenda and that's what they want to push. Philanthropic collaborative, collaboratives are this interesting model where donors are coming together to fund systems change. One example is Co-Impact. This launched somewhat recently, last year. Um, this week, uh, it was announced kind of simultaneously between the TED stage in Vancouver and the Skoll stage here in Oxford, the launch of the Audacious Project. Donors coming together to fund change at scale. Um, so I just wanted to note that, and I think that's definitely a trend we'll see.
Yeah. And I'll quickly add, um, in terms of sessions I'm looking forward to, uh, I'm heading to a session a little bit later today called Democratizing Development, Where Does a Good Idea Come From? And I think that's another part of it. Realizing that not all ideas should come out of DFID or USAID, that ideas will come from people closer to the problems that we're aiming to solve and the communities we're aiming to serve, right? And um, really looking forward to that session. I also think so much of this has to do with lingo and jargon and how we talk about things. And I've noticed semantics, exactly. I've noticed a shift uh, from the use of the word beneficiary to the use of the word customer or partner, client. I think that's a big part of it. And, and I think so conversations like this, and, and not just within one year, but seeing year after year how they shift is important. So we are about out of time, but I did want to ask one more question, and I think it really gleans from the comments that you've both made. You know, it's when we talk about proximity, a lot of the conversations are wrapping that together with collaborative philanthropy, trusting donors. But proximity, just being physical proximity, does not always equal understanding and empathy. And exactly what you were talking about, Angie, is that the the virtue of having locally-led, community-based development is this intrinsic understanding of the challenges that you're grappling with. If you had three takeaways for donors who want to engage in a collaborative philanthropy model, what would they be to make sure that they're actually doing development well? Well, I'll give you a three, but I'll deliberately make it one. Okay. Uh, I think for me it's respect, respect, respect. It is about respecting the people that you're working with. Treat them as you would want to be treated. Realize that actually they're in this space because there's something that they got right. You're not the only expert. You're not the only person who knows. So please, respect, respect, respect. And that covers issues around partnerships. It covers the issues around how you give your money. It covers how you even design the program, what you demand from them, how you engage, how you interface, everything. But I think respect is fundamental to this whole relationship. Powerful takeaway. Angie Maramirawa, Executive Director of CAMFED Africa, and Catherine Cheney, our West Coast Correspondent at DevEx, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And stay on top of all of our coverage on DevEx.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. You can also follow CAMFED at CAMFED on Twitter. We are also doing a special edition newsletter, so you can learn how to sign up on our social media handles. Thank you so much for joining us, and see you next week. Thank you.